Welcome to the Bethany Community Church Sermon Podcast. This ministry is intended to inspire you and help bring solutions to the challenges of life. Today's message is titled, Paul's Zeal, and it is part of the Life of Paul Sermon Series. For more information about other ministries here at Bethany Community Church, you can check us out at our website at bccma.org, or you can always send us an email at office at bccma.org. And now, here's Pastor Phil McCutcheon. God bless you all for overcoming the demonic forces that, that create daylight saving time. I mean, that's right out of the pit of hell, I'm telling you. If, and if, it's on Saturday night. That's how I know it came from Satan. They do it on Sunday night, so you're late for work. <laughs> it's good to see Jonathan Cakley back there. Jonathan, good to see you. I, I'm busted, though, because I, I, know, I know you've read N.T. Wright and the biography of Paul, so you're going to know where I got my sermon today. <laughs> Jonathan's uh, been a pastor friend for some time and always shows up at GLS here, and it's really good to have you, brother. Really great. Okay, um, Last week, we looked at the beginning of Paul's transformation, and that's the key word when we talk about Apostle Paul, his transformation. He was transformed. We discovered the nature of transformation, and we ran out of time. We didn't get to talk about the look of transformation and the access to it. We will get to that later. But the look of transformation is really about one word, and that is the word redemption. You know, your sins and your flaws are simply good qualities out of balance. Good traits out of balance. Truth is, or or, uh, truth out of balance is heresy. So it's the same way with the things in your life. The things in your life, Paul's love of the hope of Israel got out of balance. And we're gonna discover this morning why it was out of balance and what he needed in his life to bring this passion that he had into balance. God does not come to destroy your hopes and dreams. He comes to save them. God does not come to to destroy who you are, but he comes to redeem who you are. God comes to rescue who you were intended to be, that the fall and the dark forces have perverted your life and warped your life and warped your humanity. Jesus Christ comes to redeem your humanity. Not to make you a weirdo. I mean, you are a weirdo already, probably, so he doesn't always fix that. You just become a Christian weirdo instead of a pagan weirdo. Good to know, because you will blame God for stuff that God doesn't do to people. It's good to know. (laughs) So today we want to look at another aspect of Paul, and that's his zeal. Let's look at Paul's zeal. Let's reconsider the history of zeal, God's attraction to zeal, and the recovering and redeeming of our zeal. Now, what is zeal? Zeal is great energy, enthusiasm for pursuit of a cause, are an objective hot enough to boil. Today we're going to talk about that. Passion, zeal. What do you feel zealous about? What do you feel passionate about? 
a hobby. You know, one time uh, my brother and I were in a, a Perkins Steakhouse, or not Steakhouse, but Pancake House, down in Westfield, and there were a group of ladies in the table next to us who were so passionate and zealous about rhododendrons that we had to move to a different place because they were so loudly talking about rhododendrons. They were so passionate about something that I didn't want to learn anything about. I just offended the rhododendron uh, group here this morning. Food, sports, your child. A lot of you are very passionate about your child, especially if you only have one. <laughs> You're really passionate. That one child gets all of your love and all of your money, all of your attention. Or your children, or your grandchildren, or your family, or your occupation, or your career. Your personal position in a social structure. A lot of people, you listen to people's narrative and you can kind of hear their hear their passion. You can hear what they're passionate about. You can hear, and some people are passionate about their position in the social structure. And this is not evil. Like I said, evil is good traits out of balance. So, you know, if, if I listen to you talk and every, everything you tell me is about you went somewhere and everybody was dysfunctional until you got there, until you straightened it out, until you set your foot down, and things got right. I know that I know I know that you have zeal about a certain social position that God may have in fact shaped you to be a problem solver. Nevertheless, you're zealous about it. So let's look. Listen to Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? Am I out of my mind to talk like this? Now he's talking about these people that the Corinthian church has elevated above Paul. They're saying, Paul, he's not, he doesn't preach very well. He's, he rambles, and, and he, his physical presence, he's, his, his stage presence is kind of like Pastor Phil's. It's not very powerful or not very, uh, you know, uh, commanding. His presence is not very commanding. I always wish I had the commanding physical presence. You know, I always wish I had the, the big voice and and the physique that would just catch people's attention, but I have to, I have to jump up and down to get people's attention. You know? <laughs> but I always envy people who had that. So that's kind of Paul. I, I, I feel like I'm that, I'm that much like Apostle Paul, <laughs> that my physical presence is weak, <laughs> and my speech and my preaching are not with the enticing words of man's wisdom. I, at, least I, at least, Steve, I'm on my way to being like the great apostle. I got, I got that down, right? I am more, I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 45 lashes minus one. And they, uh, the, uh, 40, 40 lashes minus one. They say that 40 would kill you, so they would give you 39 just to bring you to the point of death. I was pelted with stones three times. I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in the danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known, uh, I, I've often gone, I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressures of my concern for all the churches. 
Now, if that doesn't describe a man who is zealous, I don't know what what would take to convince you he was a person of zeal. Paul's zeal was the hope of Israel. Christ didn't remove his zeal. He transformed it. I said Christ didn't remove his zeal. He transformed it. Let's look at the history of Paul's zeal. If you go over to Psalms chapter 106, verse 28, you see a very interesting verse. It says, it's talking about Israel, and it's recounting a story that happened in Numbers chapter 23, Numbers chapter 24, Numbers chapter 25. And it says that they yoked themselves to the bell of Peor and ate sacrifices offered to lifeless gods. They aroused the Lord's anger by their wicked deeds, and a plague broke out among them. We learn later that 25,000 Israelis perished because of this plague. But Phineas stood up and intervened, and the plague was checked, and this was credited to him as righteousness for endless generations to come. Now, the background of that story is a story that you're probably familiar with, and it's the story of a talking donkey. It's the story of a prophet named Balaam that as Israel was in sight, they were in months of being in the promised land. They had left Egyptian bondage, and they had left the slavery of Egypt, and they had started the trek across the Sinai Desert. And after 40 years of wandering around the desert, taking the circuitous route to get to the place that God had promised them, the holy land. They're still arguing about the holy land today. And so they're, they're within sight of the holy land, and they go through the territory of Moab. And the king of Moab is frightened of the children of Israel and wants to, wants to defeat them, wants to destroy them. So he goes to the prophet Balaam, and he says to Balaam, I want you to stand up here on this mountain, and I want you to pronounce a curse on them. Exactly why, or why he thought that would believe that would be effective is, is probably a discussion for another day. But he did. So Balaam's on his way. He said, I'm going to pay you very, really well to do this. And so Balaam is on his way to pronounce a curse on the people of God. And of course, you know the story. God puts an angel in the path that he does not see, but the donkey does. And the donkey refuses to go, and like two or three times the donkey refused to go, and Balaam begins to beat his donkey, and then the donkey says, why do you beat me? And he entered into a conversation with the donkey. (laughs) you've, You've done that. I know some of you have entered into conversations with donkeys in your life. You didn't call them donkeys, though. (laughs) and so finally uh, Balaam realizes when you know he revealed to him that the angel Lord is there and the angel Lord is telling him you cannot curse the people of God but he still tries because of the paycheck that was there and, and, and the benefits that were there for the king of Moab so he stands up and tries to curse them but every time he curses them blessings come out of his mouth and he pronounces a huge blessing on the people of Israel. Of course, the king of Moab was completely frustrated and went home, and they all went their separate ways, and the plan did not work. But you know what did work is the people of Israel began to worship the idols of those people, the Moabs, the Moabites and the Midianites who were in that region. They began to worship their idols. The men, the men of, Moab, of Israel in particular began to 
uh, fornicate with the women of Moab and the women of Midian and begin to, begin to engage in their orgies and their rituals. And so what, what the adversary of, of the people of God could not do by cursing them, he could do by compromising them. And so one day, a, a leader of Israel, one of the leaders, a tribal leader named Zimri, went into a tent in sight of everyone with a Midianite woman. And this was after the plague had destroyed 25,000 of Israelis. And Phinehas, who was the son of Aaron, the high priest, had had enough. And he takes a spear and he follows them into the tent. And he murders them in the tent. And you saw the scripture that I read, Psalms chapter 106, verse 28. He was lifted up as a hero among the people of God, and he was blessed of God. It was credited to him as righteousness for endless generations. And you can believe young Saul growing up in Tarshish, and young Saul being educated on, by Gamaliel, the, the, the most prolific rabbi of the day, and those treks to Jerusalem. You can be sure he knew all about Phineas. And he not only knew about Phineas, I'm sure he knew about... Uh, uh, other zealots or people who were filled with zeal. And you, uh, if you look at Numbers chapter 25, uh, I just want to give you a little bit more about, about him. The Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest has turned my anger away from the Israelites since he was as zealous for my house among them as I am. Notice that. God said, he's as zealous for my people as I am. I did not put an end to them in my zeal. Therefore, I tell him I am making my covenant of peace with him, and he and his descendants will have a covenant of lasting priesthood because he was zealous for the honor of his God and made atonement for the Israelites. Now, young Paul knew this. And he also knew about Elijah and how Elijah encountered the prophets of Baal who were also leading the people of Israel into immorality. And he... Uh, won a victory on Mount Carmel, and there he called down fire from heaven and uh, then executed the prophets of Baal. And uh, he also knew about Judas Maccabees the, uh, and his brothers who formed a tiny revolutionary group in about 167 uh, B.C. And they, uh, 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 they started an insurrection against Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, the Syrian who had taken over Israel, he had gone into the temple and, and uh, slay, slew pigs in the temple and spread the blood of the pigs all over the altar of God. And, and, and this little band of, of, of men uh, put together by Judas Maccabees, and you can find, read all about it in the book called the Book of Maccabees, and they rose up and against all odds... Against all odds, they defeated the Syrians and they defeated Antiochus Epiphanes and they ran them out of the promised land and they reclaimed the honor of God in the glory land. I know, now I understand that all this violence bothers you and it should bother you because violence bothers me. I understand that and I understand it's one of the great problems with our critics have with the Bible is they will talk to you about the violence of God. And I don't have time to unpack that today. I think that's a real important conversation because as you go out of this place and you defend your faith, it's one of the things that you're going to be faced with is people are going to tell you this God that you claim to serve couldn't be real because, you can, because, because of all the violence. But let me tell you something. And I, I don't have a total defense ready this morning or, or time, but you cannot, you cannot build a nation 
You cannot build a nation with fallen dark forces, with fallen people and dark forces without violence. It's not possible. Well, well, you say they do it in Scandinavia. Yeah, but they'd be speaking German if it wasn't for, for British and Americans <laughs> who were able to execute violence. And uh, I say, you know, if you look back at our uh, past presidents, and I, this, I'm not being political, not political whatsoever by saying this. I'm not trying to get into politics in any way here today. But I know we've kind of divided up between progressives and conservatives. That's what we've divided. So progressives are supposed to be less violent, right? And, and uh, the, probably the most progressive president we've had in recent years is Barack Obama. And yet um, he had no choice but to execute violence. Many drone strikes, military strikes, many... I'm not saying he was better or worse than anybody else. That's not my point. My point is, don't get hung up about the violence. <laughs> because it was necessary when you're building a nation. And this is a really important part of the story of Paul. Because the transformation of Paul is that God had to let him know, I'm not just trying to build a nation, I'm building a kingdom. It's not just the nation of Israel now, Paul, because Christ submitted to the ultimate violence on the cross. Christ submitted to the ultimate violence to end the need for violence. Christ submitted. Christ became the scapegoat for all need for violence for all of time. Christ became our eternal scapegoat because Christ became our eternal scapegoat. The kingdom of God is now established on the earth. So Paul, I just need to get you up to date on your revelation. I need to get you up to date on your zeal. I'm not going to take away your zeal. I love your zeal. But we need you you to have informed zeal. And when you know about the kingdom of God, you begin to have informed zeal. And that's what I want to share with you this morning as God's people. I want you to leave here today not trying to be Apostle Paul, but I want you to walk out of this building today determined to be zealous for the glory of God, zealous for the honor of God, zealous for the one true God. So that's a little bit. There's one other story of zeal that's more up to date, and that's uh, uh, the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin in 1995, a young law student named Yigel Amir. Uh, and the West got reported he was a law student because, uh, see, Rabin had taken part in the Oslo Accords working out agreements toward peace with the Palestinian leadership. And in 1994, he had shared the Nobel Peace Prize with his political rival, Shimon Perez, and the Palestinian leader, Yasser Arafat. Amir this young law student. He was not like a Western law student, a Harvard law student who's going to support, you know, uh, represent defense cases and murder cases and things like that. He was a student of the law of the Torah. He was a student of the law of Moses. And he saw the compromise of his Israeli leader. And he was like Apostle Paul. He was a zealot. He was, he's still in prison today and still is not remorseful for what he did because his zeal for the honor of Israel and the hope of Israel led him to kill Yitzhak Rabin. So, Paul, let's consider the transformation of his zeal. This is the great work of the grace of God. 
He said in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength to do his work. He considered me trustworthy and appointed me to serve him, even though I used to blaspheme the name of Christ. In my insolence, I persecuted his people, but God had mercy on me because I did it in ignorance and unbelief. Oh, how generous and gracious our Lord was. He filled me with a faith and love that comes from Christ. Christ transformed my zeal. He didn't lessen it. He didn't make it one bit less. Instead of the need to kill others, now I'm willing to die. Instead of the need to shut others up, I'm willing to be subdued. Instead of the desire to hurt others, I'm willing to be hurt. My zeal has been turned up on its head. And I'm a new creation in Christ. That's what God wants to do with you this morning. He doesn't want to, he doesn't want to take out your zeal. He doesn't want to remove. He doesn't want to do a lobotomy on you so you don't care about anything anymore. He wants to transform your zeal and, and cause you to be as, as excited about the glory of God as you've ever been about anything. And as in, if I can use the term, well, maybe aggressive is the wrong word, but certainly assertive is a good word, right? Let's talk about God's attraction to zeal. Romans 12.1 says, never be lacking in zeal. But keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Proverbs 8, 17, God says, I love those who love me. <laughs> I love those who love me. And those who seek me, King James says, those who seek me early, shall find me. I guess some translator didn't like to get up early, so check that out. <laughs> There's that famous passage in chapter 3 of the book of Revelations where Christ says of the church, at Ephesus, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spew you out of my mouth. Scripture is a running narrative of God's attraction and elevation of people who were extreme in their passion. They were extreme in their dedication, extreme in their willingness to take action. Abraham left everything to follow God's dream. Jacob was obsessed with being the power broker for the family. Joseph was committed to God so, to, so much into the word of God that neither Potiphar's wife's seduction or prison time or repeated disappointment could put out his fire. Moses became so zealous to protect Jewish nation underneath Pharaoh's whip that he took a man's life who was abusing a Jew. I'm not defending all of these people's actions any more than I'm defending Paul's persecution of the church, but it's apparent that God likes extreme people. I said it's apparent that God likes people who are on fire. It's apparent that God likes people who care about something. It's apparent that God likes people that are excited about something. It's apparent that God likes people who sacrifice themselves for something. It's apparent that God likes people who are, who are passionate who are full of energy, who are full of desire. It's apparent that God's, God's, God's like, I can take a person on fire, even if they're on fire for the wrong thing, better than I can take some deadhead who doesn't care about anything. You know, you look like you've been baptized in lemon juice and raised in a pickle factory. 
and you think, God, I don't know why God's not excited about me. God's excited about excited people. God likes passionate people. God likes extreme, extreme people. Would somebody say amen out there, all right? God could have found a Jewish man, a nice Jewish man. You think there wasn't some nice Jewish men in Israel who would have liked to have written, the, finished the Torah, first five books of the Bible, who added to God's Torah? Don't you think there's some nice Jewish men who were moderate? Gamaliel, he was a moderate. Gamaliel was a moderate. He was like, this is not of God when he's talking about the Christian church and all that was going on. If it's not of God, we need to leave it alone because it'll take care of itself. Apostle Paul made a divergence from Gamaliel. Begin to, uh, we believe, we don't know for sure, but there was another rabbi named Shammai who was extreme, let's take action, who was a zealot like Paul. And God chose a zealot instead of a moderate. Isn't that interesting? Does that... Come on, talk to me. Does that register with you that God didn't pick a moderate? That God didn't pick a passive guy? God picked a guy who cared about something. God picked a guy who had deep, deep passion. Now, God is not asking you and I to compete with the accomplishments of Apostle Paul. Even his contemporaries couldn't do that. But what he's asking us to do, I believe, stop acting as if the Christian faith can be moderately important. C.S. Lewis says, Christianity of false is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be, C.S. Lewis said, is moderately important. No wonder God said, because you're lukewarm, I will spew you out of my mouth. You know, another thing, guys, is you need to stop believing in the false doctrine of balance. You know what, like several authors have said lately, balance is bunk. Oh, I, just want, I just want to get a perfect balance in my life. Just get perfect balance. Perfect work-life balance. There are seasons of life, but there's no balance in life. Life is a juggling act. Life is a juggling act. Larry Osborne said, and he's talking about this idea, and he gave a little talk, and you can go on the internet, and there's like, uh, 10 people, because we've been talking about balance for 20 years, and now, now it's like all the le- leaders of, of leadership are now doing podcasts, and, and they've all borrowed the same title, because it's, it's poetic, you know, it alliterates good. Balance is bunk. That's what they're all saying. So uh, Larry Osborne, who I think is a great leader, Christian leader, he did his, his video on balance his bunk, and he said this. I like this. He said, you can look through the Bible, and you won't find any verse of Scripture that talks about balance. Maybe not entirely true, but I get his point. I'm, I'm a deeper scholar than Larry is. When you take a look at the Old Testament, though, the Old Testament heroes, this is Larry, not me. When you take a look at the Old Testament heroes and the New Testament heroes, none of them were balanced. In fact, they were all a little bit weird and a little bit out of balance. You are really quiet on this point, which I expected. (laughs) Because some of you are trying to be balanced. You don't want to be too loud, too quiet. You You don't get too involved. You don't, you don't want to sign up for too much. 
You don't want to get too weird. You don't want to get too spiritual. And God's saying, I want you to be off the charts. I want you to turn up the heat in your life. I want you to get zealous. I want you to begin to speak up and act up and sign up. I want you to get on fire. <laughs> How many of you are ready to get on fire? Turn to your neighbor and say, get on fire. <laughs> Let's end by talking about redeeming and recovering our zeal. Lisa Earl McLeod said, humans are happiest when they know what they are doing matters. I, lo I love this next statement. We have two core needs, intimacy and ultimacy. Ultimacy means I have found something that is of ultimate importance. I knew it was important to go make some money. I knew it was important to go have some friends. I know it's important to have a roof over my head. I know it's important that my kids get cared for and they get an education. I know it's important, you know, lists, go on and on. It's important that I have a little bit of leisure. It's important that I take a vacation. List all the things that are important in your life. But at the end of the journey is God. What's going to last forever? Not going to be any of those things I just mentioned rattled off. What's going to last forever is your eternal soul and the eternal soul of your children and the eternal soul of all the people in this community. The kingdom of God is going to prevail. I need something of ultimate importance to give me the passion that I need for life. And Paul found it. Okay, I get it now, though. Paul was a religious zealot and you're not. I get it. You don't have to tell me that you're not. He was raised to be one. As a little boy, we're growing up in Tarshish and raised in an Orthodox Jewish family. Paul's also lived in the first century, and you live in the 20th century, 21st century. Some of you are still living in the 20th century, but the rest of us have joined the 21st century. Also, Paul apparently didn't have a spouse and kids, as far as we know, although some people argue with that because he was a member of the Sanhedrin, and some people say you had to be married to be in the Sanhedrin, so I don't know, but he doesn't... Something must have happened to, to his wife if he had one, because he doesn't mention it. Uh, I know his life doesn't look like yours, but truth is portable, because God isn't asking you to be Paul. He didn't ask Simon Peter to be Paul or Barnabas to be Paul. He asked Paul to be Paul. God has a tailor-made plan for your life. God knows what you're passionate about. God knows your, your capacity of interest. And there's something, there's something that you have the capacity to be interested in that you could be on fire about and you could be anointed of the Holy Spirit to do. And you could make a difference in the world and that world may start with you, just you and your spouse and then you and your kids and you and your next door neighbor and the people that you work around and I, I, you know, I don't know, I can't become known as a person that was out there, but she's in my small group, and, and, and Darcy Shramek talks about she's become known as a person at work that you go to for prayer. If you need prayer, you, they go to Darcy's desk to be prayed for because she's always praying for people at work. And so that, that's, that's what she's doing to, to, to impact the world. That's what she's doing to impact the world. There's a hole in the world that's exactly your shape. Yeah. 
Let me give you some things. Let me give you some bullets about Paul's passion. First of all, Paul's passion was redeemable. His passion for the hope of Israel. It was incomplete. It was uninformed or, or, or not well enough informed. It, it had um, possible pathologies like tribalism, uh, exclusionary nationalism, but it was redeemable by Christ. Secondly, Paul didn't realize Jesus really cared about his passion. He didn't know. He didn't know that Jesus cared more about Israel than he did. And then nobody, he didn't think anybody would care. He didn't even ask God. <laughs> Paul didn't even say, God, should I go persecute those Christians? No, these Christians, I mean, these Christians were the corruptors. These Christians were the same thing to Paul that the Midianites and the Moabites were to Phineas. We were the same, we were the same threat. I know, I know, because you... You think sex is the only sin that God cares about, some of you. <laughs> you think, oh, God, just, he's sick of sex. He just doesn't like that. No, there's a lot of other sins that God cares about besides just sexual sins, okay? So God just didn't curse them because they were having fun. God cursed them because they were corrupting the, his glory. And so Paul looked at the you might think, well, those nice Christians, well, they were, they were corrupting the house of Israel. They were, they, they were even hinting that Gentiles could, could have this blessing. That was scandalous. That was scandalous. So, so Paul didn't realize that Jesus really loved Israel more than he did. And you may find out that God also really cares. Jesus really cares about what you care about, too. Wouldn't that be cool? If you found out that Jesus cares about what you care about, but cares about it way better than you do? Somebody said, hallelujah, hallelujah. Paul learned that Jesus had a bigger and better dream than he did. I mean, Paul was small in his thinking compared to Jesus. Paul was, okay, we're going to get everybody back to Israel, the Holy Land. He knew what the boundaries of, of the dream were. You know, the Euphrates River and the Mediterranean Sea, and I don't remember all the boundaries, but let's get Israel back. Let's get us established as a nation. We'll have peace. We'll have our king. We'll appoint our king on Mount Zion, and all will be right with the world. Jesus said, for God so loved the world. Jesus came to save the world. Jesus came to hold, save, and redeem the whole stinking mess. Amen. Abraham was 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 to be the Abraham was to be the father of nations, and Paul thought he was the smartest man in the room, but he hadn't met Jesus. But when he met Jesus, he was no longer smartest guy in the room. He no longer had smartest guy in the room syndrome because he met the boss. Man, I get excited about this. I, you're not as excited as I am, but I can tell that. That's okay. That, that's, that's occupational hazard that I have. I get more excited about stuff than you do. 
But that's okay. Just go think, go home and think about it, all right? Paul learned from Jesus where he was passionately but tragically wrong. You know, you, you may have one of the great passions that we most of us have is our passion for our family. We have a passion for our kids, passion for our grandkids, passion for our spouse, a passion for our house. And God has a passion for your house too. God has a passion for your kids and grandkids. But have you taken that passion for family to Jesus and made him the Lord of it? Because you may be getting it tragically wrong in some places. Thank you. You may get it tragically wrong in some places. And I, that, that's a whole other sermon series where we get it right and wrong with our family passion. But think about that. Paul found that the most honorable passions needed the authority of Christ. It was critical that Paul get his zeal centered and grounded in Christ to keep it from doing more harm than good. Only Christ can absolutely protect you and cleanse you from the pathological, harmful, and exclusionary ways that you and I will live out our passions. Here's the, here's the ending of this message. You need Jesus. I know that's oversimplification for some people, but it's that simple. Is You need the teaching, wisdom, presence, and power, and ethic, and authority of Jesus and his word. Or you will make a mess of life with your zeal and your passion. Now, it would seem that we have passions that are irredeemable. We often think of them as addictions. Drugs, alcohol, sex addictions, all those things. Then we have holy passions like Paul. From the time he was a little boy, he would begin his morning and evening prayer with, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He prayed that twice a day his entire life. Some people believe it was three times a day, but I know it was twice because the Old Testament says it. I believe, let me say this, I believe that addictions and unholy passions are the human response to having our holy zeal crushed by the dark forces of life and hell. The young girl that once dreamed of being a force for greatness in the world resorts to abusing substances and making her body available for unhealthy sex because the dark forces crushed her dream. The man who once dreamed of a wonderful marriage and family that would be a source of joy in the family and, and in the community resorts to late nights alone in front of the computer scrolling through porn. The marriage fell into disrepair. The dream went away. I could go on with illustrations like this. While they're all different, they're all the same. And that as humans, we, we are born to believe that all things are possible. And when we, we face disappointment and hurt, we get stuck in a pattern of destruction. And I believe Paul was there. Think about Saul. He had become a frantic and cruel man because he saw his dream slipping away. But what do you know happened? The person, listen, the person that he saw as his greatest threat was his greatest champion. The person that he thought was going to crush his dreams was the one who loved his dream and knew how to save his dream so that not only would, 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 would the world be saved, but Israel would be saved and Israel would have always have the most prominent place in the kingdom of God as they do today. 
Paul thought Jesus was opposed to his passions, but instead he found out Jesus was the fulfillment of his deepest longings. Do you hear that today? Paul thought Jesus was opposed, and some of you are here today. You need, you need this conversion experience because you think Jesus is opposed to your passions, but he's the secret and he's the fulfillment of your deepest longings. Paul's deepest longing was the hope of Israel. What's yours? Jesus is a savior of hopes. Do you hear me today? Jesus is a savior of hopes and dreams. He's a savior of holy passions and holy ambitions. There's no, nothing more critical than that you meet your Savior. It is critical that you get your zeal and passion centered in Christ. Only Christ will protect you, as I said earlier, from those pathological, harmful, unhealthy, unholy, exclusionary imbalances that come into our life. The centering ourselves in Christ is the main thing. It's good to believe in the sense that you believe who Christ is. But the term believe or faith the, the word faith is the, is the Greek word pistis, and it, 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 yes, it means to believe that Christ exists, but it's more than that. It also means allegiance and loyalty, and that's what I'm calling you to this morning, to come to Christ to make him the center of your life, to bring your life under his authority. Josephus, the historian, writes about an ancient general who conquers another general, and he's on his knees in front of him, this conquering general and the conquered general, and he looks down at the conquered general, and he says, do you believe in me? Now, he didn't, he didn't mean, do you believe I exist? He meant, do you pledge allegiance to me? If you pledge allegiance to me, you will get to live. Jesus, maybe you don't like to think of Jesus being aggressive. You need a more passive Jesus. Fine, let's have a passive Jesus. He also, Jesus is across the table from you today. He's having dinner with you and he's saying, do you believe in me? What are you going to say to that? If you want to be transformed, you want to be redeemed, you want to, you want to have a, a life similar to Paul's, then you say, I swear, I promise. I don't promise a sinless life. I can't do that. But I promise my allegiance to you. Later, Ananias would, would be told, go to Straight Street and see Paul. He's praying. Paul said prayers before, but he was not praying before. He was thinking. It's good to think, but the salvation will come to your soul when you elevate praying above thinking. Because when you're praying, you're saying, God, what should I think? When you're thinking, you're telling God what he should think. But when you begin to pray, you begin to say, God, what should I be thinking? God, I need you to be the brain in my life. I need you to be the superior brain, the superior wisdom. I need Jesus. Let's bow our heads. Father, I invite the prayer partners to come right now. Would you come and get in your places? Father, I just uh, pray that you would speak to the heart of the person out there today who's perhaps given themselves over to unhealthy forms of passion and zeal. Whether it's led them to hatred and bitterness or lust and indulgence. It is destroying their lives and the lives of others, just like Paul's life was beginning to destroy the lives of others and would ultimately have destroyed his own life. 
But Jesus, you did, the, you did the intervention and you saved him from himself. Now I pray for that person that I'm talking to right now, those, those people that I'm talking to, that they would be saved from themselves right now by the power and redemption love of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name. This is a time, if you're a visitor here today, this is what we call response time. If you need prayer for anything in your life, I want you to come and have these prayer partners pray for you. There's uh, communion elements for you to partake of in the back and in the front. Come and be prayed for. If you've not made that step to follow Christ and, 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 and pledge your allegiance to Him, this would be a great day to do that. It's the best decision you will ever, ever make. God bless you. Let's enter into response time, Bethany.